Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Premed Year, session number 299. Hello and welcome to the three-time Academy of Podcasters award-nominated podcast, The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you for taking some time out of your day to plug in the pre-med years to your phone, to your device, whatever you're listening on, and putting on your headphones to listen. I have a great guest for you today, somebody who came from being homeless at one point, being a high school dropout at one point, being in Vietnam at one point, and worked his way up to being the Surgeon General of the United States, the highest position for any physician in the U.S., it's an amazing story of triumph, dedication, determination, hard work, grit, everything and anything. We talk a lot about his path and how he was successful and how hopefully you can learn from his success to make you successful on your journey. Let's go ahead and say hello to Dr. Richard Carmona. Rich, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. Happy to be with you. When did you realize that you wanted to be a physician? Well, I guess it started when I was a child. Um, even though I was a truant, didn't go to school that often, and struggled when I did, I enjoyed science, and I kind of read on my own voraciously. And even in junior high school and uh, before, some of the first books I were reading about anatomy and physiology. And so there was uh, an interest that was peaked later on, but even uh, as I you know, worked my way through junior high and then high school and dropped out of high school, I never lost that interest. What, uh, what caused you to drop out of high school? Well, there's nobody to blame but myself. Uh, my parents were uh, immigrants and um, they struggled, you know, was homeless at a time as a child and had two brothers and a sister and uh, we were in a survival mode most every day. But um, 
you know, had I been able to stay focused, I, I, there's no reason I shouldn't have been able to stay in school. But lots of distractions, and uh, it ended up uh, my second year in high school, my third year, both those times I was, you know, asked to leave because I was a truant. Then I came back, and I, in my senior year, I was still taking freshman and sophomore courses, and I was 17, and the counselors kept urging me. I mean, it wasn't for lack of input, because my counselors were wonderful, Mr. Blau and Mr. DeGrand at DeWitt Clinton High School in the Bronx, and they kept encouraging me to stay, offering me resources, but again, the distractions were great, and, uh, you know, in the neighborhood where I grew up in Harlem, you're in a survival mode every day. So hopefully just stating a fact and not an excuse. In retrospect, I think if I had worked harder at the time, I could have done it, but uh, I didn't. And at 17 with no job, not much future ahead of me, and what jobs I had were marginal at best, uh, I enlisted in the Army. What was that like? Well, it was transformative. Um, there are a few places in the world that will hire uh, a 17-year-old without any tangible skills, um, little knowledge of the world, and uh, make them into a uh, citizen, teach them about duty, honor, country, responsibility, how to complete a mission, all skills that ultimately would become invaluable to me and in later years as I had other opportunities to go back to school and uh, eventually go to medical school. It really, I think, is what set me apart from many of my colleagues, having been in the military, having gone through combat, and uh, all of the stresses associated with that, that made me a stronger person, a better person, and I was truly able to focus on the mission at that point and uh, make sure that I was successful in completing my mission, which at that time was to go to medical school and uh, complete medical school. What did you do in the Army? I went in uh, infantry. There are not many jobs for kids with no experience and training, so most of us were uh, taken into the infantry, which for the listeners who haven't been in the military, those are the guys that do the fighting. Uh, and they teach you weapons and they teach you about combat. And then I went into jump school and became a paratrooper. Then I volunteered for special forces, went into special forces, was accepted, did pretty well on the, on the, uh, uh, the armed forces uh, psychological testing and the uh, GT testing, which is more or less the uh, IQ testing. And so I had the opportunity to be a pilot, um, go to officer candidate school, or go to special forces, which is what I wanted. So I chose special forces. And uh, shortly after being uh, brought into special forces, I almost lost out because they said you have to be a high school graduate mm. to be in special forces when they look more closely at my record. So I asked the senior sergeant, you know, what is it I have to do? They said, well, you need a high school diploma. So I went to the education office, and I found I could take this GED test. And I, I read the book in a couple of hours. I said, I think I can do this. And I took the GED test, and I got my high school diploma. So now I was a high school graduate. I stayed in special forces, and I completed my training in special forces, which, as you know, lasts over a year. I was a special forces medic and a weapons specialist. And uh, that, that training comes on top of all of the basic tactical training that you receive uh, as a, what's called an operator, uh, a, a special operations uh, combatant, or the short term is called an operator. Yeah. How much of your medic career do you 
do you give um, credit to to your desire to be a physician? You, you said you liked science earlier on. Sure, liking science is great to be a physician, but being a medic, I'm, uh, I bet, was your first exposure to the healthcare world. Really was. It really was. And it, you know, if anything, piqued my interest, humbled me, made me see how little I knew, even though I knew a lot more than most people by the time I finished my training. Because as you know, uh, in the advanced provider program, which is a special operations medic, you're trained to be the doc. You're, mm -hmm. you're in austere environments, more like the Air Force PJs, us, some of the Navy SEAL corpsmen. Uh, we are meant to be the medical support for our teams in the most remote, austere environments where there is no doc, there is no nurse. And back then there really was uh, radio communication that was not very reliable at times. So uh, having at 19 and 20 years old to take care of gunshot wounds, take care of um, indigenous forces with parasitic diseases, with malaria, deliver babies and rice patties, which I did one time in the middle of a firefight. Um, Th those were twins. Don't, don't sell twins. yourself short. Twins. Yeah, <laughs> twins. Yeah. And, and um, when I think about the things that I had responsibility to do, really as an older teenager and a very young man, and it would be decades before I had that kind of responsibility again as a physician after all of the training. But it was humbling when you're the only one out there and you know you stand between a person living and dying if you haven't learned your lessons, whether it's stopping hemorrhage, where it's getting a medevac ready, whether it's keeping your troops healthy you know, on, with hydration, nutrition, because you're, you are the doc on the team, but yet you have the same responsibilities in conducting combat operations as the other team members, because on special forces team, we're all cross-trained. Mm -hmm. So I had a primary of medical, but a backup of, my, of weapons. The intel guy was cross-trained in weapons. Uh, one of the other guys, like in, in, in um, intelligence, might be cross-trained as a medic. So there's 12 of us, we're in a remote area, and we're all cross-trained in other specialties so we can help each other out. And what we had in common was we're pretty young kids who had an immense responsibility uh, to carry out these missions with really no supervision and a great, a great, I mean, I, I can't emphasize to you the responsibility. And it's scary when I think back of what we were entrusted with and how we did okay with uh, accepting that responsibility and carrying out the missions that we were assigned. And on the medical side, taking care of extraordinary injuries, uh, that you never see in the civilian, or rarely see in the civilian world, and all kinds of rare and tropical diseases, parasitic diseases that are common to many of the geographic areas that we served. How long did you serve in the military? Well, I did. Uh, um, Your first time around. Well, I well my, my t total time is ten years, mm -hmm. and so three and three active, then three reserve, then coming back into special special uh, after special forces. Uh, coming back on active duty after medical school, yeah. residency, fellowship, and all of that, and then ultimately becoming sur Surgeon General, which is a four-year term by statute. Yeah. When you left active duty the first time around, were you planning on, on going to medical school? Was that your dream, or did you think that wasn't possible? Actually, when I finished my first combat tour, I... I was already reconciled that I was going to make the military a career. I had been promoted. You know, I was an NCO. 
a non-commissioned officer. I had bigger responsibility. Um, I had uh, made it back in one piece. You know, I was wounded in combat, but you know, I was lucky. A lot of my friends didn't make it back, and I was just going to stay in special forces and just make it a career. But largely, it was my teammates and friends who encouraged me to go to college. Now that presented a problem because I wasn't prepared for college. I didn't have SATs or PSATs, and my GED was hardly a real high school diploma for applying to a college. So I had that secret that nobody knew. And so my high school counselors, who I mentioned earlier, they sent me letters in Vietnam. Mr. Blau, I still have his letters, encouraging me to go to college when I came back, and you know, encouraging me, inspiring me that I could do this. And I kept all his letters. I mean, these were wonderful people who saw potential in me that I didn't see in myself, much like my mother and my grandmother. And uh, what happened was, uh, Mr. Blau had, my high school counselor had contacted one of the local community colleges in New York City, the Bronx Community College, and found out that they had an open enrollment program for Vietnam combat veterans. And even if you were a high school dropout, they'd give you a chance to matriculate for a year. So I got a letter and saying, yes, you're accepted. And I was kind of scared because I wasn't, I was, I think, more comfortable about going to combat than I was about going to college because <laughs> I, I just, I wasn't prepared. And I'm going to have to sit in a class with all these smart kids and plus, you know, feeling, even though still a young man, feeling like an old man with the experiences I've had already. And uh, that Vietnam era was a tough time uh, where uh, most of us who were combatants were blamed for the war and the public hadn't come to the understanding that the blame needs to go to those you elected who make those decisions. We are simply pawns in that game. We are the agents of execution. We're given orders and we carry them out. So really it's not our fault. And of course now today the public understands that whether you agree or disagree with the war, that uh, the young men and women who serve uh, they're heroes, no matter what, because they're serving their country as the leaders who were elected asked them to do. So in any event, I, um, I went into reserve status and I uh, went to community college. It was a very humbling and sometimes embarrassing experience with all of the, with all of the um, experiences I'd had and being in combat and everything. And now to kind of ratchet down and have to sit in the classroom every day with very smart young men and women not really knowing how to study, not knowing the prerequisites. So I took remedial courses for almost a year. And during those times, I worked various jobs. So I've been a police officer, I've been a paramedic, I've been a registered nurse, I've been a PA. All skills that I learned in the military that I was able to translate to the civilian world over the years and work so I could make a living and go to school. And uh, after that first year, I did pretty well. I mean, and even in my remedial courses, I did okay. But I became an A student. And I became uh, very focused. And uh, to be honest with you, I was not as smart as people thought I was. But what I had over everybody else was discipline. I understood I had a mission. I knew that I had to achieve certain milestones. I knew what the timeline was. I knew what resources I needed. And so I got up earlier than most kids. I stayed up late. I do my PT every day, keep myself in shape. Usually that was at 10, 11 o'clock at night when I go night runs and do all my exercises. So that was regimented in me. And eventually I did okay, applied to a number of medical schools, got into several medical schools. I had already transferred to California to finish my college in Southern California. 
and because a lot of my battle buddies were out there, so I went out to be with them, and um, I did really well. I mean, I was an A student, got honors, and uh, ultimately decided on University of California, San Francisco, and uh, was probably the best decision I ever made because, you know, uh, consistently ranked one of the top two, three, four medical schools in the country, and it was uh, uh, just a melting pot of diversity. Yeah. You know, being in San Francisco next to Haight-Ashbury in the 70s, and, uh, you know, it was almost like going to medical school at the United Nations with all of the languages and ethnicities you came across. And then you see how stressful medical school is. You know, there's 150 kids in the class, all were A students in college, and all of them wanted an A in medical school. But I wasn't worried about that. I um, recognized that my goal was to become a physician, and whether I graduated one or 150, uh, at the end, they're still going to call me doctor. And so, but I'm not going to let down. I'm going to work as hard as I can. A lot of students have imposter syndrome around around that world, whether they're in medical school, they're pre-meds, they're residents, <laughs> attending physicians. It seems like imposter syndrome is is all along the way. Yeah. When when you go back to college and you're a high school dropout, when you're in medical school and you're a high school dropout, how do you how do you fight that feeling? You just push on. I mean, it's it's a mission, you know, you feel inferior. Like I said, I used the word humble before. I was humbled many times sitting next to people that fully understood equations and science that I had interest in but didn't have the knowledge they had. And it took me a while to catch up, but I recognized that, you know, my mission was to get through this and to get through it, I needed to catch up with these people. And if I could, you know, not only catch up, maybe surpass them in some areas. So, um, you know, you, at times you almost feel unworthy, um, mm -hmm. like you snuck in, like you really didn't belong there. Maybe that's this imposter thing you're yep. talking about. And, but, you know, I just kept driving forward and I, I wasn't going to give up and, I worked as hard as I could. I volunteered for every rotation that nobody wanted. I didn't I hardly took any vacations because every time I had free time, I went to a clinic or I volunteered for something. And I didn't realize it, but I, I, um, I had finished medical school in three years. And I, I graduated. I skipped my last year. I graduated number one in my class. And then I uh, started a surgical residency at the University of California. And so uh, none of that was planned. Yeah. And I, I'm here to tell you, as I tell kids today, you know, people attributed a great intellect that I was very smart. I really wasn't. I was average intelligence, but I had superhuman persistence, perseverance, and judgment, as well as the ability to uh, focus on my mission. All skills I learned in the military, which made me look a lot smarter than I was. How much do you, I think I remember part of your story is your parents are immigrants. Uh, you were, you're, were born here, but your parents are immigrants. And I hear... <laughs> Time and time again, the an immigrant story is is one that that you're telling that one of perseverance and dedication. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, my mom, my, my mom, uh, they were good people. My, my mom and pop, but they had some substance problems. And um, my pop, you know, spent a lot of the time with his friends in the street. He was a good guy. He loved us, but you know, he had trouble. He had trouble really expressing that. But he was a kind man, and and really just had trouble expressing the love for his children. My mom was almost like a single parent, even though she was married, because she kind of took the burden of raising us and worked hard. And she, she, you know, there were times we had no money. We were homeless for a while. We got bounced around. 
she took a job working night shift and then in the day she'd come home dress us get us to school i mean she was awesome uh so they worked hard you know and uh, i have two brothers and i had a sister she passed away of cancer about a year ago she had a very tough life as a little girl uh you know kind of bouncing around uh, my uh, younger brother followed me into the army and he spent 30 years in special forces wow. uh, retired as a sergeant major and um when he retired as a high school dropout going in, he came out with a college education. He spoke Russian, Arabic, Spanish, and English, and had complete, completed at one time or another all of the special forces courses and became a, a team, one of the special forces team leaders. And so he accomplished a great deal in 30 years of service, including multiple combat tours. And, um, and so the military was good for two of us, my other brother, worked hard his whole life but chose not to go on to other education and retired you know working in different businesses and eventually got his uh, retirement and you know became a, a taxpayer and a good citizen but yeah. he chose a different path so we all made it but largely i think my mother's encouragement my mother instilling in us this the this land of opportunity and don't let it go to waste and get your education because nobody can take it away from you and mom often spoke in Spanish and English, but my mom spoke five languages and she was brilliant. She's, she taught herself languages. She knew music, she knew art, she knew geopolitics. And she used to challenge us every day with stuff that we had to know to be productive in the world. And she said, so you don't have to be pulled down like everybody else in the neighborhood. You, you can escape, your escape, your ticket to escape is get an education. And she pounded it into us and she'd make us go to the library. She'd make us read. So I attribute a lot of it to my mom, my grandmother, my abuelita, um, my, my pop a little bit, but pop wasn't there all the time. But as I said, I don't have hard feelings for him. Uh, my only thing is I, I, I'm not sure I ever got to know him because he wasn't, he was absent a lot, yet I know he cared for us. Um, but the, the women in my life were the ones that drove us the hardest and made us uh, appreciate that um, we could achieve much more than anybody in the family had ever achieved. I just have to work hard. And they were right. What was drawing you to be a physician? You you talked earlier about the sciences and the exposure to to medicine as a medic. When you got out and yeah. you're like, oh, I guess I could be a doctor, what, what was it that, that made you want to do this? I would say in one word, caregiver. I love being a caregiver. I loved helping others whether it was the acutely ill people and, you know, bad stuff or parasitic diseases or delivering babies, whatever it was, I just, I just, I felt good. It was, it was, um, you know, probably stimulated my endorphins. Let me put it that way. And my <laughs> dopaminergic neurons. And it just, I loved helping people. Yeah. And today I st still feel the same way, you know, although most of what I'm doing today is at policy level and big business and things like that where I can have an effect on a population, work with underserved communities, do things that will improve the health, safety, security of a population, a family. I, I, I really feel good about that. When you went to medical school, did you have any idea of what you were going to specialize in or is that something that came through the process? No, when I went in, I, I knew I wanted to be a trauma surgeon, do trauma critical care and um, I, I loved every rotation. I mean, I was challenged. Every rotation I was on, I had second thoughts. 
when I delivered babies, I was like, man, this is cool. I, I, I could do this forever. And when I was on psychiatry, I love psychiatry. I mean, just the mystique of trying to figure out the human brain. And, and you know, back then we didn't know about the psychogenomics and the gen you know, genetics of psychological, psycho psychiatric disorders and things. But I, I was just, I, I uh, did a month on an acute psychiatric unit and I left with more questions than I learned about how come, you know, how does this work? Uh, psychotropic medicines. But every rotation to me was like a gift. It was like, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is incredible. And it was interesting that when I was in the second year of medical school and we had to do, um, we do microbiology and parasitology. And I remember the day we took our final exam in uh, micro and parasitology. And it's a long table in the lab and there's like 20 or 30 microscopes out. And under each microscope, there's, there's an organism. And then there were two or three questions. Life cycle of the organism, how do you treat it? Where do you find it? Who's the natural host? And I aced it. And the professor said to me, you did pretty good. I said, well, this is the same final exam I took in special forces like 20 years before, 15 <laughs> years before. I said, to be a special forces medic. And I said, so I asked him, I said, have you treated malaria or schistosomiasis? Or, and I named a bunch of other diseases. He says, no, I've never trained it. I said, I have. I said, I, and I said, I, I've, I, I, I remember sitting saying, you know, I've seen schistosoma hematobium and japonicum. And I, and I told him about a case I had found in, in Southeast Asia that I wasn't sure what it was. And a Navy pathologist came down and said, yep, that's what it is. And, and I was only a kid back then. But I, I, a lot of the things I learned in the military helped me a great deal to uh, understand the context of what I was learning since I had kind of gone through it in reverse order. I was doing mm -hmm. those things long before I, I uh, learned the in-depth science that you learn in medical school. So... Uh, like I said, by the time I got past my second year and we're going into rotations, I was really, I wanted to be a surgeon, but I couldn't figure out how I could do everything. It was like I loved everything I was doing. And then the decision was kind of made for me because at the end of my third year, I didn't realize that I had already completed medical school and I'd done really well. And an intern had dropped out of the surgery program in the first week of July. And so the dean had said to me, um, the chairman of surgery would like to talk to you. And they talked to me and said, you can start your internship right now. You don't have to match. And I said, well, no, nah, I have a whole year of electives. And so thanks, but no thanks. And they called me in a number of times. And the dean said, don't you understand? You, you don't have to go interview. You're going to save a lot of money. You know, you can go right in here. And I understand that this was going to be your first choice anyway. So look at it as being kind of the, a draft pick. The, the chairman's going to take you right now and you don't have to match. And I was, so finally my wife said, even though she didn't want me to do it because she wanted to spend time doing the rotations and go around with me, she said, you know, it'll save us a lot of money. You should probably do it. So I did it. And I started my internship like the first week of my fourth year, which was all electives. And I just went into internship and uh, I graduated. Uh, when I finished my internship, uh, within a day or two, I actually grad still went back and graduated with my class just to be with them, even though I had technically graduated the summer before. And they were nice enough to invite me back to give the uh, graduation address a salutatorian. And then I won the gold cane as the top graduate and then a couple of other awards. So it was really kind of incredible. I only wish my mother and father could have seen it, you know, after all those years. How do you 
or what would you say to to a student who comes from a similar background who who comes from the streets who comes from growing up in in not the best neighborhood who who can blame his or her parents uh, because they have substance abuse and, and weren't there to support them. Although you, it sounds like your mom did a, a wonderful job supporting you. But the, the student who, who continually blames their surroundings, their parents, their friends, the system, for why they can't be a physician, even though they're trying. Well, I think it's bigger than just medical school or physician. You can go through life blaming everybody else for problems. Nobody said it was going to be easy. You know, on Special Forces, we have a saying that the only easy day was yesterday. And so um, at some point, you just have to deal with the fact that you've been dealt uh, a, a hand that may not, may be suboptimal, but what are you going to do with it? If you sit around and complain and you blame your parents or the environment or the social determinants of health, that's not going to get you any place, okay? But you figure out how to navigate that system. You figure out how to beat the system. You work a little harder, you know? And I know it sounds easy, but and the only reason I feel I have legitimacy to say it is that's what I did. And, and, and I failed many times, but I kept coming back and I didn't give up. And the military is really what helped me to understand how much potential I had where I didn't have confidence in myself after my military training, being in combat and all of that, and especially special forces, which is probably the toughest military training in the world, it was like, I can do anything. All I have to do is figure out what my mission is and what my resources are, my timeline, I can complete anything. And so I think that my path was military, it worked for me, and it may not work for everybody else. But there are many success stories of people who just look beyond the, the headwinds that you're dealt in living in poverty or struggling and a family that struggles, whether it's health problems or drug problems, and you, people succeed, but they stay focused. And so when I talk to young kids, and many over the years have come to me and say, you know, I heard your story, I'm in a similar situation, and you know, you dissect down, well, what is it, what, what's, what's, what's holding you back? You know, there are scholarships available, there are schools, you can work, you may have to work harder than somebody else, but you can get it done if you put your mind to it, no question. And once you are successful, then you can help others behind you because people will look to you and say, well, he did it. Why can't I do it? And you can become a role model and you can become a person that really um, uh, helps those from where you came. In fact, I'll tell you, when I was a, when I was a young, um, I was working nights as a registered nurse when I was in college. And this head of social work at there, I got to know her pretty well, Hispanic lady. And we used to talk and they were always very nice to me because they knew I worked the night shift and went to school in the day. So when it wasn't busy, I was an ER nurse and I was a supervisor. So they, 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 they I was the only male and uh, all the nurses would try and mother me and just say, hey, look, you go to sleep. And they'd bring me food. They'd wash my clothes because they knew that when they went home, I went to school. So it was really nice. But the social worker, she told me one time, she says, hey, you know, Carmona, she said, uh, I think you're going to do pretty well. She says, I've been watching you, and uh, you don't give up. She says, I want to tell you something, though. When you make it to the top, when you take that elevator to the top, make sure you send it down for somebody else. Hmm. Never forgot that. I never forgot that. And I understood many years later what she meant. Yeah. That for those of us who have been received the benefits that a society can give, 
whatever, not just doctor, anything, and you come from those humble beginnings, what are you going to do to make it better for the people? What are you going to do for the pipeline behind you or what we might call succession planning mm -hmm. and get other people in there and help them? So I do the best I can to try and uh, spread the word, uh, whether it was at the school I met you at or doing a podcast with you. If people can hear me or see me, and even if there's a couple in that classroom that go, well, heck, I could do that too then if he did it, yeah. then I've been successful. Yeah, and that's exactly why I want you on the podcast because it's it's that story, the the story of students who who don't think they can do it, and I show them someone who has done it from similar backgrounds, and they go, oh, I guess maybe I can. So. Well, I'll tell you, you know, there are many days I didn't think I could make it. I'll be honest with you because of my military training, I always had a plan B. Once I got, once I, you know, once I was working and I knew, I, okay, if everything fails, I could still be a police officer. I could be a paramedic. I could be a registered nurse. At times I was teaching. I was teaching scuba diving, skydiving. I was an ocean lifeguard. But everything I was doing was skills I learned in the military. And then, um, I, you know, a couple of times I thought, man, this is going to be tough. It was one semester. I thought for sure I was going to blow a couple of courses. And it was my best semester. I, got, I was like taking 20 units. I got all A's you know, and some tough courses, and I couldn't believe it. But I was always worried, again, maybe that imposter syndrome that I just wasn't gonna be good enough. And you know, and I'd make it through another semester, then I'd make it through another semester. And I amazed not only myself, but a lot of people. And, and again, it was just the, the focus, the discipline, completing the mission, and it's a long mission, lasts for years, but eventually you make it. So if anybody thinks that once you're in, you, you don't have those doubts, you have those doubts until the day they hand you the diploma. And even when you get the diploma and you're a doctor, it starts again when you're an intern and you're a resident. Did I do enough? Did I study enough? Did I read enough papers? Because now it's life and death, okay? You can't be cutting any corners. You know, you get this, you've got this immense responsibility to care for our fellow citizens we call patients. And it's you really that are the only one that has the privilege and responsibility to probe the heart, the minds, the souls of those fellow citizens we call patients. And you better not mess it up. And so you have to read, you have to study, you have to stay focused and never forget the immense privilege that you've been given and try and pass it down. So somebody else or somebody's else coming behind you will do the same thing. You've made it to the top. You, you were talking about your, your mentor advisor telling you once you make it to the top, don't forget about everybody else. You were Surgeon General here in the United States, which is the, the top position for a physician in this country. For the many students, even many physicians out there, they don't know what the Surgeon General is or does. They just know of that uh -huh. title. What What is the role that you did okay. as a Surgeon General? Well, first, let me, t let me tell you, I never planned that. Um, when I got out of medical school, I thought I was going to be an academic surgeon, finish my training. I was a, a general vascular surgeon, subspecializing in trauma burns and critical care. And I was going to climb the academic food chain and just do that. But, you know, um, life is what happens when you're planning. And over time, I got drawn into being chiefs of service and ahead of this and starting the first trauma EMS system, you know, a whole bunch of things that I had never planned to do and eventually doing more and ending up running a hospital, running a healthcare system in a public hospital. And again, I never planned any of those things. They're just opportunities that arose and people with authority said, can you do this for us? And I did it. But because of those challenges, actually, as a professor at the university, 
I went back to night school to get a master's degree because I knew I needed more information to be competitive in these new areas that I was working in. And I did. And it was shortly after that that uh, I was called uh, to be asked, would I like to consider going back on active duty, that the president was going to be looking for a new U.S. Surgeon General. And quite frankly, I laughed and thought, this means there's another Rich Carmona in the country, because there's no reason for them to call me. I don't have the pedigree. I'm not politically connected. I don't hang around with those people. But I went ahead and did all the interviews because I thought there's no downside. They'll, you know, in a couple of weeks, they'll figure out they got the wrong guy. I'll stay working and everything will be fine. But it wasn't to be. I kept interviewing and kept moving and moving. And eventually I'm in the White House interviewing and West Wing. And, and I was the last guy standing and got the job. And the job is Surgeon General of the United States, a job description to protect, promote, and advance the health, safety, and security of the United States. You're the commander of the United States Public Health Service Commission Corps, where your officers are at CDC, HRSA, SAMHSA, NIH, all the federal acronym agencies, state health departments, and, and, put, and actually as medical officers in embassies around the world, in foreign governments, at the World Health Organization, the Pan American Health Organization, so it's an extraordinary responsibility uh, to be the so-called top doc. And, um, you know, you, you pretty much subordinate your life for those four years at that term because there's so many things happening. We're at war two wars. We're having to train our soldiers and sailors in the new world order of terrorism, the weapons of mass destruction, the tools of the terrorists. And among all of that, we have all of the diseases obesity, heart disease, issues with science and research. And so there's this immense, immense portfolio that you're dealing with and you try and whittle it down. For me, it was prevention, preparedness, health disparities, health literacy, global health, health diplomacy. That's why I tried to spend most of my time. But every day you're getting pulled into other things that happen based on the news of the night before. So it's an immensely um, important position but it's what you make of it, and it's what your leaders allow you to do, the latitude to take on the responsibilities. And it changes with each generation uh, and the needs of the nation at the time that the Surgeon General comes in. Unfortunately, the position has been politicized, and um, it's not what it used to be. I'll leave it at that. But it, it was still probably the greatest experience of my life to serve as the doctor of the nation and work with my all of the services uh, with the army the navy the air force the coast guard on combat casualty care on um, things that were germane to national preparedness and national security but also to sit with the national institutes of health 27 directors uh, in their institutes on a regular basis and work with them to help them appreciate uh, their goals of things that they were doing in scientific research to benefit the american public in the world and, you know, the list goes on with all of the opportunities you have. The only thing you don't have enough of is time. And when you leave the job, you always feel, if I just had six more months, I could have done so much more. But I'm immensely um, humbled as well as happy that I was given that opportunity to serve once again in uniform and really put all my skills to use to benefit my fellow citizens in the United States but also uh, people around the world where I traveled often on uh, national security issues, homeland security, emergency preparedness, and then the routine public health issues that you read about from emerging infections and things like that, flu, vaccinations, 
I mean, the list again is endless, uh, but what an experience. And again, uh, I never planned it, never planned it. But people said, uh, Rich Carmona was lucky. And I said, I, I was. But my definition of luck is the intersection of preparedness and opportunity and recognizing opportunity when it's at your doorstep. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes, the, the harder you work, the lucky you are. Yes. Yes. I mean, and I think that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So it's been uh, a surreal journey. And again, I always think back to my mom who loved us and did the best she could for us in spite of her own problems. She never forgot her children. But my mom's goal was just she wanted to go to a graduation. And she only meant high school because none of us had been out of high school. Yeah. So she just wanted to go to a high school graduation and see one of her kids graduate. And she never got to do that because we all dropped out. And that, that kind of broke my heart. But she knew I made it to medical school eventually uh, just before she died and uh, – and so at least she, she knew that, and my father did as well. But, um, I, you know, I, I wish it would have happened a little earlier. Maybe I could have changed the course of their lives as well. You've been in and around the medical field now for a long time. You've seen a lot of the changes within medicine, within the way insurance works. And we have students who are listening who are, are going into this bright-eyed and bushy-tailed into a, a system that many think – is very broken and uh, it contributes to a lot of burnout among physicians. What do you say to the student who is is starting on their journey to, to medicine when many people in it are trying to get out of it? I would say to them first, don't forget the immense opportunity and responsibility you've taken on. And don't shy away from the challenge because it's you that has the potential to fix the system. The system is broken. It is perversely incentivized. People get paid to make sick people better. They can't get paid or very little get paid to keep people healthy. There's the, uh, the perversity, if you will, of politics. And one of my presentations, I talk about the plague of politics. And often it is one of the most insidious and uh, maybe most malignant things that we face is the plague of politics because it's about partisanship. And you can't have rational discussions in these political environments, as there's evidence today when you see the news or whatever you want to call it, because it truly isn't any news anymore. And, um, you know, where you have elected officials that you would hope you could sit down with and have a reasonable discussion about the needs of the people and how to accomplish that. You know, what is the budget? What's the resource? What's the mission? Instead, we kind of a witness to a fight where one party blames the other and nothing gets done. And we have gridlock and we have a budget that's out of control. And each party blames the other side for it. And we, the people, don't get the representation we need, the selfless service that the public deserves. And, of course, democracy is predicated on compromise, okay? But there's no more compromise. One side wants to take all, and they beat up the other. They spend more time and resources beating up the other. And why am I emphasizing this? Because the challenge before us, with all these new young docs that are coming out, how do we crack that system where we can get people to represent us? Because as, as physicians, we have knowledge, but we have no authority. Locally, we have little things we can do in our own organizations. But until we deal with issues like gerrymandering and pay, uh, the um, campaign contributions on uh, term limits, there's a whole host of issues that you look at to right-size a political system. Because whether you like it or not, the political system that we have is the one that gives authority to all of those agencies that pay our health care, 
that give the rules and regulations for healthcare, CMS, Medicare, Medicaid, that all comes from the elected bodies that we have elected. So what I say to these folks is, marshal your forces, focus on a mission, and the mission should be how can we make it better for those people we have the privilege to serve, our family and friends, and let's figure out how we can crack this problem of this hyperpartisanship that creates a gridlock that doesn't allow us to use all of our faculties to the best benefit of the people since we're fighting battles that we shouldn't have to fight with people we've elected who are supposed to be solving those problems for us. Don't shy away. Remember, you have an opportunity. And I've continued to fight through all of my years. I do it diplomatically below the radar. And I'm, I don't you know, look to uh, be a screamer and yeller, but there's ways that we can affect social uh, behavioral change behind the scenes. And it's gonna be incremental. It's not gonna be one bit of legislation. And over time, some of us will get elected to public office and we can make changes there. But definitely we need some significant changes to break up this plague of politics which is hurting all of us now, no matter what side of the aisle you live on, it is truly bipartisan dysfunctionality. For the student listening to this right now, what would you say to him or her to to educate them on where to begin to to learn about how to get more involved in the policy, in the politics, since you've lived in that world? Well, I'd say from the first day, you know, get involved with organizations that are there to improve the health, safety, and security of the nation. In every medical school, there's, you know, medical, you know, there's American Medical Student Association, for instance. There are other organizations of students that band together to do things in communities. When I was at UCSF, we had Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, a number of other opportunities that we took on. Some of us who were prior service and were medics and or nurses. We started a clinic, uh, like a, a, a vital signs and primary check clinic that we had the students enroll in as well. So they'd learn how to, you know, nursing skills, for instance. And so there are things that you can do to make it better with the skills we have. But I think the important thing is start to learn about the political system where you live. Where is the power? Where's the authority? At, at the city council, board of supervisors, governor's office, what committees have jurisdiction? for funding pro programs and projects at a local, at a state, at a federal level. Learn how the system works so you can become part of that system and influence decisions so that they will be made in a selfless manner for the betterment of our society rather than the skewed, what I'd call value proposition we have today, where most elected officials are really more worried about getting reelected and keeping a party in power. And there, therein lies the problem. You know, and I, on an individual basis, I've worked with them on both sides of the aisle, all 535 of them at one time or another. And individually, they're fine. But when they get into their caucuses and their platforms and special interest groups, you know, uh, fill that swamp, it's very difficult sometimes to make the best or correct decision because, you know, who, who is your, who is the client? Is it the special interest group or is it the patient? Is it that poor family in the community or a wealthy family in the foothills? It doesn't, doesn't make a difference. And we're constantly torn. And our legislators are torn, too. Where is their allegiance? Is it really to us or is it to the special interest groups? And I, I'm not educating, I'm sure, most of our, your students listening to this. But understand those dynamics and figure out what can we do to change those dynamics so we can have rational discussions. We can begin to incrementally solve the problems before us 
again, on behalf of the American people. And yes, there will always be people who are going to disagree with you, and they're not getting enough. But again, democracy is predicated on compromise, and if we can do as much as we can for the most people, that's about as good as we can do in a democracy, because nobody is going to agree on everything every time. But be fair, be impartial, and as I did with Surgeon General, my job was not to appease Republicans or Democrats. My job was always to look through the lens of science and make decisions and recommendations based on the best science that would benefit the people of the United States and, in many cases, uh, allies that we work with. What last words of wisdom do you have for the pre-med student who's listening to this going, oh, what am I getting myself into? Uh, or, or maybe is, is like little, uh, little Rich in the neighborhood who, who doesn't think that he or she can, can make it. What, what do we say to those students who are, are on the beginning of their, well, uh, of their journey? Well, the first thing I remember in Spanish, si se puede, that means you can do it. You can do it, number one. Number two is that, you know, you think about, look at how many people in our country get a high school diploma, get college, get graduate school. I mean, when you get to medical school, you're at an infinitesimally small amount of very uh, privileged people who have that opportunity. And then the question is, what are you going to do with it? It doesn't make a difference if you go into private practice, if you go into research, you go into government, but do the best you can in any one of those jobs to make whatever geography, society that you are responsible for better. You know, and never forget that it's an immense privilege to serve. Lots of people would love to be a doc, okay? And a nurse and therapist and others too, but right now we're just talking about physicians. And never forget that, you know, when you get there, it is an extraordinary privilege. And it's first about selfless service, subordinating one's own interests for that of the patient. You will miss birthdays, you will miss parties, you'll miss vacations sometimes because a patient is sick or something happens. But to me, that's a privilege because you get to help another human being through maybe the most trying times of their life. And if you're working with underserved populations, often, you may be the most important person that person ever interacts with in their whole life. And sometimes all a patient needs is a hug or a handhold. Develop the patient-doctor relationship because it has therapeutic value. And so every patient doesn't need a prescription, but almost every patient needs a hug or a handhold or a reassurance that you're going to help them through whatever they're getting through. Again, the privilege of truly being a caregiver. So don't lose sight of it. It's not going to be easy. The only easy day was yesterday. But if you stay focused on your mission and work through what are all of the variables that contribute to you being successful in that mission, you can do it. You don't have to be that smart. An average person working hard can get through medical school. And the fact is, every medical school wants everybody to think that all of their students are potential Nobel laureates. And But most of the kids that go to medical school go into practice in a community and they take care of patients, which is admirable. A very few of those graduates stay in academics and do research. So there's a smattering of us all over the place. And some of us do both at different times of our life, which I did. But it's still a privilege to serve. Never forget that privilege. And once you get there, you'll be humbled. You'll love what you do. But your whole life, you're going to be second-guessing yourself because all medical school does is open a door for lifelong learning. Jokingly, 
the day you graduate from medical school, it may be the most dangerous day in your career because you have a lot of book knowledge, but not enough clinical knowledge yet. It takes a few years to build that clinical acumen and really be a great clinician. But what an opportunity, what a responsibility, you know, that only a few people are afforded that privilege. So don't forget it and just work hard for it. All right, so there you have it again. That was Dr. Richard Carmona, former U.S. Surgeon General and vascular surgeon specializing in trauma and wounds and burns and everything else that he had mentioned. Amazing story of overcoming the odds. And a lot of people are in similar situations, and they don't get out of that situation. Could they? Sure. They, they possibly could have. If one person did it, anybody can do it. That's how you need to look at this game. If you see one person like yourself who is a physician, who's a medical student, who's a successful pre-med, and you're continuing to blame your surroundings on why you're not successful, it's time to look in the mirror. It's a hard conversation to have, but I'm pointing my finger. Hope you have a great week. Next week's episode 300. So join us. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe right on your iOS device on Google Podcasts. If you just go into Chrome on your Android phone, you can search for the Pre-Med Years Podcast and find me there. And it'll download an app right on your screen on Google Podcasts. You can also subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next week. 